Well, our speaker this morning is Jared Crosley, who is familiar to many of us as one of our music leaders. Uh, Jared's currently working towards his Master of Christian Studies at Regent College in Vancouver, where he's concentrating in Christianity and the arts. His thesis work will combine academics and songwriting as he explores how music can help us grasp a biblical theology of remembrance. He recently accepted a full-time position at Trinity Western University as their Assistant Director of Student Ministries, Chapel Programs, and he begins there on August 1st. Jared was born in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, but he grew up in Richmond, where his dad pastored a local congregation for over 15 years. He and his wife, Ruth Ellen, who is our children's director here at Jericho Ridge, met while studying at Trinity Western. They will be celebrating their fourth anniversary in just over a week. Jared loves running and cycling with Ruth Ellen, hiking, building websites, writing songs, drumming, eating sushi, and playing board games, but I will add, not at all the same time. His pet peeves include grumpy transit passengers, check, weak coffee, and people using the words orientated and irregardless. And that is one reason that Jared and I have a friendship together, but I should apologize on behalf of our church. We often make poor grammar errors, and yet Jared still has a love for our community. So thank you for demonstrating unconditional love, Jared. Thank you for your leadership here at the church, and we are excited to hear what God has spoken to you about in Psalm 73 this morning. Well, good morning. Well, Some of you may know this. Many of you probably don't. I was homeschooled as a child. And uh, among other things, this meant that uh, when the clock struck 12, I went downstairs and ate lunch with my older siblings and my mom, who was also my school teacher. And uh, my mom was and remains a very creative person. She's industrious. She's sensitive. She's methodical. um, She's preeminent in all matters of tidiness and housekeeping. And what's more, she's a great cook. But the last fact was completely lost on me when I was young. It seems really dumb when I look back on this experience now. But I always envied the kids who got to go to public school and carry a little paper bag lunch with them to school. I, and and I, I built up this whole fantasy around this probably fictitious um, experience of opening your lunch bag at when the clock struck 12 in the cafeteria, sort of carried through the humdrum of morning classes by the promise of this treasure trove of very likely delicious and sugary and unhealthy treats. Now, I don't know what was actually in these lunch bags, um, but I had some assumptions, Uh, maybe peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, fruit roll-ups perhaps, uh, soda pop, chips in those little single-serving bags. And if I was really, really lucky, I thought to myself, maybe I'd get one of those uh, Lunchables. They're sealed in plastic. It's like crackers with a little blob of cheese Whiz and a red spreading stick or whatever. Um, That would just be heaven, I thought. And and nothing I ate was wrapped in foil. Uh, Nothing I ate was sealed in plastic or had any potential to turn my tongue bizarre colors after consuming it. And I thought to myself... What, what gives? Like, I wish I could get bag lunches. That's what I would think to myself. And there's a word for it, uh, beyond like fantasy and, and, and immaturity and all the rest of that, envy. I was envious. Um, whether what I was envious of actually occurred in real life or not, I'm still not sure. Um, but envy is the name for the tendency we give to this desire to have something different or something better or something more. 
And we've all experienced this before in different areas of life. We look at our families, we look at our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our favorite celebrities, possibly even some of our enemies, and we think to ourselves, if only my life were a little more like that. And if you've ever felt this way before, then you can relate to Asaph. Asaph is the author of Psalm 73. And who was this guy? Well, 1 Chronicles 15, verses 16 and 17 tells us that Asaph was a Levite. He was a priest um, from the tribe of, of, uh, of Levi. And he was, uh, he was told by David and his associates to sing and to prophesy. So he, he might be what you'd call an Old Testament worship leader of sorts. Um, and he was speaking to the Assembly of Israel, which was his congregation. So here I am, um, one of the music leaders here at Jericho, Um, doing something at the moment which I feel is a lot harder than just singing songs somebody has has written. And if you ever want to grow in your respect for the pastoral leadership here at Jericho, um, just preach one Sunday. Um, I think his message is relevant for us. And so we're going to jump in. Verse 1. Just so we know that when we hear the rest of the psalm, he hasn't completely lost it. He reassures us here at the very beginning, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he declares up front that God is good, and then he also declares that a pure heart is important. Now, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Purity has to do with being morally upright. And uh, in Israelite culture, the heart was not just considered the seat of one's emotions, you know, I, my, I just get heart palpitations when I... There's my wife. She just walked up to, through the center, and I just got all excited. She's great. She'll give me moral support. Emotions are fickle. That's not what the heart is about in Hebrew understanding. The heart is like the center, the very core of your being. I guess it's sort of like your gut. Um, it's the center out of which all your emotions, all of your affections, your willpower, you know, the choices you make, your volitional choices, all of that stuff. It's the very core of your being. So somebody who is pure in heart is somebody whose inner and outer life is just saturated by the things of God. Sin is not attractive to this sort of person, and the things of God are celebrated as good. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the body moves. So someone who's pure in heart is somebody who just finds God's truth irresistible and beautiful. The opening verse of the psalm foreshadows its conclusion in verse 28 which says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. And because of this, Asaph has made the sovereign Lord his refuge. These two verses tie the whole psalm together and act as the lens through which we can understand this chapter. Simply put, because God is good, being near him is the best place to be. And I'd like to use this time to talk about two ways in which we, uh, we see that God is good in this psalm. First, God's truth dispels the lies of envy. And second, God's justice can be trusted. Let's enter the story together. And beginning in verse 2, after acknowledging that God is good, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So he backslid a bit um, after entertaining all sorts of bad thoughts. Now, a better rendering of this verse in the Hebrew is actually that my feet have been, or my legs have been, poured out. 
It's the picture of your legs turning to jelly. They just lose their consistency. And Asaph is quivering under the weight of his own doubt and uncertainty, probably not unlike the very feeling I'm feeling at this moment. Um, so that's what it is, just jelly, quivering, uncertainty. Verse 3 tells us that Asaph is filled with envy when he begins comparing what he has to what those around him has, have. When he saw the prosperity of the wicked, he compared it to his own circumstances, and he felt like he came up a bit short. They have more fruit by the foot, maybe, or whatever. Um, he's not just talking about money here when he says prosperity, but he's talking about a life that is full and complete in every way, a life that is healthy, a life that is full of peace. So we start with uncertainty in verse 2, and then we move to jealousy in verse 3. And by verses 4 and 5, he's completely gone out to lunch now. It's outright fantasy here. So let's read verse 4 and 5. Um, he's losing his sense of reality when he, when he uh, looks at the lives of the rich and famous. Verses 4 and 5 say, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens and are not plagued by human ills. Seriously? Like, literally, again, the Hebrew here for bodies are, are healthy and strong, um, it actually says their bellies were fat. Now, this isn't exactly an appealing image in our day, but, but it does speak to something in ancient Near East culture where a plump person is a prosperous person. You live in subsistence culture. Um, you're living off whatever the land yields for you in any given year. So a plump person is obviously doing pretty well for him or herself. They're well-fed, they're reclining comfortably, they're living off of the abundance of the land, and as their wickedness suggests, likely often at the expense of others. Now, in verse 5, he goes so far as to say that they were free or not plagued by human ills or human burdens. <laughs> right, Asaph? Can any, can any life really be problem-free? Of course not. But I know I've fallen for this faulty logic before. From Asaph's point of view, the wicked have it pretty good compared to him. Their lives of apparent abundance and ease have filled Asaph with a sort of dis-ease that's eating away at him. In verse 7, he characterizes these people as people with callous hearts, people who've just hardened their heart, the core of their being. Maybe they've reached the point where they just don't feel guilty for the bad things they do anymore. Their appetite for evil has really begun to infect them and sink into them, so much so that their imaginations are bent on evil. The thoughts that they entertain and the things that they do are just plain out wrong. And in verse 9, uh, he, he uh, indicts them even further. He says that the wicked lay claim to heaven. They speak against it. They mock it. And their tongues take possession of the earth. This second bit, their tongues taking possession of the earth, um, another way to describe that would be that their words are parading around the earth. And that brings us to a really good point that words have legs. Um, they travel far. And deceptive words, deceptive words that are maybe tintillating and, and enticing, they have rocket boots strapped to them. So the tragedy of all of this is that people really are eager to drink up words of wisdom and truth. Even in this day and age, people long for truth. They long for something real and substantial that they can sink their teeth into and claim and believe in. But verse 9 tells us what we already know, and that's that oftentimes people just settle for do bowls full of, of doggy water. 
Uh, verse 9 says, Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Verse 10, Therefore their people turn to them in abundance and drink, or sorry, turn to them and drink up their waters in abundance. So these people are mocking God beyond that. They scoff. They say, God, what does God know anyway that I don't know? And what's more, people are hanging on their every word. So as the song goes, Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Now, Asaph's probably feeling pretty self-righteous at this point in the psalm. And we probably would be too if we were in his sandals. These wicked people just sound pretty downright awful. And he's got some good points. Asaph feels like there's something wrong with this picture. But we'll learn as we go through the rest of the psalm that it's not quite what we think it is. Now, just a bit of an aside. Envy can easily be concealed even in our self-righteous cries for justice. So let's not deceive ourselves because we'll find out here that that's exactly what Asaph's doing. And I feel this tension every time um, my wife and I visit downtown Vancouver. So you reach the intersection of East Hastings and Maine. Carnegie Community Center is there. And you have uh, homeless members of our Vancouver community converging there every weekday, every weekend. Uh, They don't have homes. They don't have family. Uh, Many of them are are in failing health. uh, And all they've got are the clothes on their back. And less than a kilometer away, there are posh, impressive, high-rise condominium complexes multi-millions of dollars, luxury accommodation. Four streets down, you have Robson Street, and you have people um, traversing the, the Robson shopping strip um, for triple or quadruple-digit designer jeans with, with that bleached and gravel-washed uh, process done to them so that they look worn, right? And the irony of their purchase is completely lost on most of them. Now, I hurt for the sin and injustice that makes homelessness a reality, Broken political, social, and economic systems all play a role in this tragic reality. But notice the subtle subtext here. I'm talking about systems. I'm not talking about people here. I'm able to sort of distance myself from the problem. But even when I do think about people, and I'm a person, right, um, the disparity between the rich and poor is so obvious here in that location that it's much easier for me to point my finger in condemnation at those who are gainfully employed and living in luxury downtown than it is for me to just stand in front of a mirror and uh, realize that I'm selfish too. And I think to myself, share the wealth, dude. But I stop short because I know, really, that I sort of like one of those condos. That'd be great. So let's never allow the God-given guiding wisdom of our conscience to be silenced by the voices of pride and the desire for control or any of that stuff because these voices will kill us slowly, but there's the still small voice of God that if we lean in close, we'll hear him asking things like, do you trust me for for your future? Do you trust me with the care of your soul? Now, Asaph's beginning to wonder here, does God's truth dispel the lies of envy? I mean, the wicked have it pretty good. He's begun to doubt God's truth and trust in lies. He began to believe that justice wasn't possible, and all of these yucky feelings culminate in verses 13 and 14. He, in essence, says here, if the wicked are doing so well, why do I try so hard to please God? He says, in vain have I kept my heart pure. Oh, so that's what Asaph is on about, eh? So this psalm isn't really about the prosperity of the wicked. Um, It's about the state of Asaph's heart. My heart 
has been pure, he thinks to himself. From head to toe, I've kept myself clean. And for what? Why bother doing the right thing when all it brings is suffering? Now, this has happened again probably to all of us at one point or another. For me, it was the end of this past semester where uh, it, it was brought into fullest relief for me. I felt like serving God just wasn't really getting me anywhere. I had loads of final, uh, final papers to write. I had lots of reading to do. I still had lectures. I had freelance design work, which was sort of my side job to sustain this education habit I have. Um, I, there, was so, there was church ministry. My, my wife is involved in kids ministry here. And I just had no idea how I was going to finish anything, let alone everything, on my to-do list. And every morning I prayed, God, please, please give me strength. Please help me to get through the day. And I just got more and more tired. Now, finally, I got sick. Bronchitis. Oh, great. And I had to preach, actually, for my class um, a few days after that, which... I was really dreading. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, the whole weekend, it's leading up to this, this big date. And every day I felt worse instead of better. And I thought, God, I've tried to be faithful here. What gives? I mean, the least you can do is at least give me a good night's sleep if you're not going to take my cough away or not going to take any of these other tasks away from me. And as if to add a little bit of insult to injury, Ruth Ellen got sick a few days before that and got better in 48 hours. And she was just skipping along just fine. I thought, what? Now, my picture of what life was supposed to be like with God wasn't squaring up with what life actually was like. And the lie that I somehow deserve something different was starting to seep into my heart. So let me give you a couple examples so that you can maybe uh, uh, dig in to this feeling as well and, and feel this along with me and along with Asaph. Have you ever felt like being obedient to God is just getting you nowhere? Trying to make sense of this, we can think to ourselves things like this. I'm trying to be responsible with my finances, but my tax refund didn't even cover my accounting fees. Or maybe I'm trying to care for the environment, but uh, my compost pile still reeks, and buying organic is really expensive. Or I'm trying to work as unto the Lord, but nobody at the office just recognizes the work that I put in. I work really hard, and nobody cares. Or maybe... I'm trying to stay sexually pure in my thoughts and in my actions, but some days I just feel like my body's so pent up that I'm going to explode. How do I do this? What's the good in that? I'm trying to be forgiving, but when I am, people don't seem to have a clue how deeply they've hurt me. How do I be forgiving and still be honest? Some mornings I wake up and I just feel like I'm being punished for doing the right thing. Where is the justice in that? And it is here in the middle of the psalm, that Asaph is confronted with his own sense of defeat. And he asks himself, can God's justice be trusted? Verse 14. There's more to this verse than the vague feeling of suffering unjustly. The word here that's translated as punishments, every morning brings new punishments. Um, The NASB translates it chastened. That's actually a, a better Uh, translation or rebuked perhaps the word suggests that you're not just sort of getting willy-nilly the short end of the stick or whatever but that God is actually um, working with you to bring something new out in you so Asaph's heart is slowly being softened by God's correction and the truth that's beginning to sink in and he's starting to trust in God's justice and in verse 15 Asaph fast forwards 
to present reality. His perspective has been completely transformed, and he exclaims, in essence, good thing I only thought all that stuff and didn't, like, say it to people. That would have been really bad. So his faith in God's truth and justice has been restored. And we'll find out how in a moment here. But remember those bag lunches I, I was talking about at the beginning of my message? Well, I want to tell you what my lunchtime actually looked like uh, for real um, at lunch with my two older siblings and my mom. So mom would call us down for lunch, and all I got was homemade fresh bread out of the oven, vegetable or chicken soup with a dollop of, of sour cream or cheese plunked in the middle, Um, maybe a turkey sandwich with fresh romaine lettuce and tomatoes and maybe a hint of of, uh, yellow mustard and horseradish. Who would want that? I mean, I could have Lunchables, for goodness sake, right? (laughs) Now, looking back, I can see that my perspective was totally off, and I'm really glad I didn't say that stuff to Mom. I mean, I complain sometimes, but I didn't beg for bag lunches and fruit roll-ups every day, and thank goodness I didn't because Mom knew better And she gave me stuff that was so much more nutritious than processed snacks. Now, note here that the the metaphor breaks down at some point, uh, and it's it's at this point, really. What I wanted was actually bad for me, and so what I got was better. And I'm not just saying that uh, every apparent suffering we endure, like not getting fruit snacks for lunch, is actually just a blessing in disguise. No, I want to acknowledge here that legitimately awful, bad things happen to each one of us at different points in our lives. And God's truth is not that all of our sufferings are actually good things and we just need to put on new glasses and look at them differently. But God's truth is that he will be near to us. God's truth isn't that we'll be comfortable all our days, but God's truth is that he will be near to us all our days. And that is good. Terrible injustice takes place all around us, The powerful often oppress and manipulate the weak. They prosper in material ways, but as we cling to the surest and most precious hope that at the end of all things, Christ will return and reign in justice and righteousness. It is at that place in fellowship with God that we can begin to see that he is good. Now back to Asaph. So verses 16 and 17, he tried to make sense of his circumstances, pain, prosperity, what it meant to be pure in heart, and it all pinned him down like a lead weight until he entered the sanctuary of God. And it was in God's presence that things were finally put in their proper perspective. So Asaph allowed God's truth to dispel the lies of envy. In the presence of God, Asaph discovered that the glory of the wicked is fleeting. They will be destroyed suddenly. Like one waking from a dream, they'll fade away, and it's not up to us to point out their wickedness to God. He knows his world. He's well acquainted with us. And if we ask him to to punish so-and-so for their wicked ways, he may just as soon hold up a mirror and say, look at your own stuff, buddy. His ways are good. He is just. We've got to trust that. And so Asaph does. He decides to trust in God's justice. Now verses 21 and 22. Asaph does hold up the mirror to his own life and he sees his own sin. His grumblings about the supposed prosperity of the wicked actually revealed the wicked state or the impure state of his heart. He realized he's just like them in a lot of ways, wanting something more, wanting something different, 
feeling like the heavens owe him something. And he calls himself a brute beast before God. I love that. I think I'm going to try that if I, if I get into hot water with Ruth Ellen um, this week. I might just, you know, liken myself to a wild animal and, and, and see if that maybe diffuses the situation a little bit. Now, Asaph is relieved here, though. He finds relief even as he's processing all this stuff. Why? Because he's processing it in the presence of God. It's here that Asaph finds his rest and his fulfillment. It is here that his life holds meaning. And Asaph hasn't fled from God, but he's taken his pain and his anger and his confusion and his frustration and his envy, and he's brought that to God. He's been honest, and that's what God himself invites us to do as well. Now, in verse 23, Asaph reminds us that God is holding his hand. Yet I am always with you, he says. You hold me by my right hand. Now, this isn't some, I want to hold your hand moment. It's not some cutesy moment where he's just, you know, frolicking among the flowers with God. Um, the Hebrew is very telling again here. The word hold sounds sort of, I mean, you can hold the hand floppily. You can, this is like the death or the life grip um, of God. And it actually packs quite a wallop. It suggests that God is seizing his hand. He's taking control and possession of him. God has claimed Asaph for himself and is holding on tightly. And note what hand it is that God is seizing. He's seizing his right hand. Now, this is incredibly significant. Jewish fathers blessed their children, the firstborn. Well, I guess any, any, any time a blessing was issued, they blessed with, by laying their right hand on whoever it was that they were blessing. David in Psalm 110 spoke of sitting at God's right hand, the, place, the symbolic place where God's, um, God's approval and God's favor and God's authority rests. So in, a, in essence here, God is seizing Asaph's sense of control and power and laying claim to his very life. He is, he is seizing Asaph and holding on tightly. And this is good. God is jealous He's allowed to be. He's jealous in the right way. He's jealous for his children. He's jealous for us. We are his. And in verse 24, Asaph declares with gratitude that God gives wisdom to those that he loves. He's guided and held by a God who promises direction in the present and glory in the future. And in contrast with the wicked who try to take possession of heaven and earth, who try to lay claim to it, have authority over it, Asaph acknowledges that the only thing really worth possessing is friendship with God. So even if his body is weak, even if his legs quiver and tremble under the weight of doubt and uncertainty and confusion, the center of Asaph's very being is held by God. God is the strength of my heart, he says, and my portion forever. The word portion, um, this is even very significant because Remember who's writing here. It's a Levite. It's a priest. And the 12 tribes of Israel, if you've been tracking with our Momentum Journal readings, um, you'll know that in the Old Testament it talks about the 12 tribes of Israel each getting an allotment of land. Well, not quite. Actually, 11 of the 12 tribes get an allotment of land. And then God says to the chosen ministers at the temple, the Levites, that, uh, that tribe, he says, I will be your inheritance. I will be your portion forever. This must have held so much significance for Asaph. 
To be near to God, to be near God is to live, and to be far from God is to God is to die. So, so God may ask us to endure a whole bunch of suffering. He never promises us wealth or comfort or status or success, freedom from health problems, easy living. As for me, it is good to be near God. God doesn't simply offer us life as we know it or maybe as we'd like it. He offers us life as he knows it. And he turns all of our expectations inside out and invites us to, add, to enter into relationship with him uh, that he might be our center of gravity. So Psalm 73 isn't mainly about the prosperity of the wicked. It isn't mainly about the comfort Asaph receives from knowing that the wicked will get their just desserts in the end. It's not even really a psalm about the, the uh, promise that Asaph will be rewarded in the end for doing the right thing. All of these themes are present, but they all center around a much bigger question, and that's the question of whether or not following God is really worth it. Is it all it's cracked up to be? Psalm 73 is primarily about defining, or shall we say redefining, what goodness actually means. What's the definition for goodness? And I'd like to suggest, based on Psalm 73, that goodness equals nearness to God. Being near God is good. It's not just good, it's the best place to be, always, because God is goodness itself. Goodness isn't material prosperity or comfortable living or a healthy body or a secure job or a perfect family life. It's not a life free from pain or hardship. Goodness is nearness to God. Nothing more and nothing less. And when we look back to the early chapters of Genesis, um, we discover that Adam and Eve's disobedience resulted in banishment from the Garden of Eden. This was relational separation. This is distance. This is the opposite of nearness. It's sparness. This was not good. This was very, very bad. But we also know, living in this time and place, that in his self-giving love, God sent Jesus Christ to close this relational gap, that we could once again draw near to God, get close to him. Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So, the problem here, we have, a, we have trouble being content and we're, we have a tendency to be envious and want stuff uh, that we don't have. And the remedy here, well, remember what God has said. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So the remedy for envy is to remember God's nearness. When things start going haywire in our lives, a practical question we can ask ourselves then is what can I do to move toward God rather than away from him in this situation? Now, some situations are of our own making, and maybe a better question there to ask would be, should I, like, like what led me to this situation? Was that, was that in, a, in a desire to move in the direction of God, or was that in a desire to run away? But for the sorts of situations that we find ourselves in where maybe it's just uncomfortable or, or unpleasant or, or a place of pain or uncertainty, we can ask this question, what can I do in this situation to move toward God rather than away from him? Another good question, I think, to ask is, what does my response to this situation tell me about what I believe about God, myself, or others? 
Because oftentimes our picture of what life with God is supposed to look like isn't congruent with what's actually happening. And I think in those times, we need to step back and ask ourselves, okay, is my picture of God messed up then? It actually might be. Or is my picture of myself messed up? It might be. Is my picture of my neighbor or, or my community um, distorted a little bit? It might be. So what can we do um, to, to reflect on those situations and ask for the revealing light of God's truth to pour in? And it's especially during those dark times when we face or observe injustice around us, when we feel like doing the right thing isn't getting us anywhere, that we need to be reminded that his ways, even though they're mysterious, they're good. They're good. Distance can be comfortable. Getting close is hard. We have this thing we call it personal space, right? Um, we only want to let somebody in so far. And uh, our God is trustworthy, and he is loving, and he is gracious, and he is merciful, and he knows all that stuff going on inside of you before you can even put your finger on it. And what he invites us to do is to enter his sanctuary, to come into his presence, um, to invite him to be with us and nurture us and heal us. And I'm going to have the team um, come up now as, as we're reminded then of these three truths. That when you sense envy seeping into your heart, you can remember that God's truth dispels the lies of envy. And when you're tempted to behave immorally or unethically, to further your career or your status or your friendships, any of that stuff, or when you, when you see all this junk happening around you and you think, how could that possibly go unchecked? Remember that God's justice can be trusted. And when you feel lonely, when you feel worn down or beaten up or misrepresented or disregarded or impure or worthless, just remember that because God is good, being near him is the best place to be always. Goodness is nearness to God. Let's, let's draw close to God.